0: talk to you tonight about your two novels, Damascus Station and also Moscow X. And normally I start the authors off with some easy questions, but I already warned you, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to (laughs) just jump right in um, because you joined the CIA when you were 19. You were recruited, right?
1: That's right. Yes, I was an undergrad. Uh, It was like the tail end of my uh, freshman year. Uh, I was at a small school outside of Chicago and The guy at the time who ran the Middle East uh, analytic shop at the CIA came to recruit on campus. And at that point, most of my experience in high school working had been digging holes for a sprinkler system company and working as a cashier at Wendy's, no no joke. And, uh, you know, I thought the CIA would be kind of a nice step up from that. So I threw my name in, thought, you know, nothing will happen. And, you know, here I am, I went through the whole process really young and early and, I uh, did a couple summers as an intern there, and then joined full time after I graduated.
0: Well, after being an intern at the CIA, how did that change your experience going through school? Because I'm guessing they're recruiting you so early so that you're not getting in trouble and having to fail any type of security checks, right?
1: <laughs> That's a, that is a big part of it. Um, I I like to think that I was you know on a very uh, up and up trajectory and would have been you know an upstanding citizen regardless, but they do they do attempt to get, you know, and it's not for any nefarious purpose, but it's just a very practical, realistic perspective, which is if you can get people in the pipeline in their freshman or sophomore year, it makes it much more likely, you know, two things. One makes it much more likely they can actually pass polygraphs to get in. Uh, And then number two, you know, you, you get two summers, if you're the CIA, you get two summers to look at somebody. And to see how do they do the job, you know, are they are they effective at the work and um, and really that works both ways, you know. I got a couple summers to test out the CIA too, so I think uh, I think it's really a, a pretty effective program, and uh, I know it's still out there. I think you know the the CIA recruits people off of university campuses, freshman and sophomore year, all over the country.
0: And you studied international studies, right?
1: Yeah, international relations and French. That's right. That's right
0: and a big impact and helpful when you were then a full-time analyst at the CIA?
1: I wish I could say yes. I mean, you know, I, (laughs) it's one of those things where, yeah, yeah, the school's probably, it's, it's, it's not that it's not important or not effective, but as soon as you get in, you know, you kind of realize the job is very different. I mean, it's not an academic job, you know, it's, it's, Analytic writing, uh, briefing. I mean, if you're a, if you're a case officer or or in some other role, it's totally different from school. But you know, the the international relations study did prepare me to kind of you know, it reflected the interest that I had in the world, um, the desire to understand how the world really works. And you know, I I think in that respect was a helpful kind of primer for the work at CIA.
0: And I think more and more that usually is the case with some of the college degrees. It's like, you need to go through this. It's the stepping stone yeah. to get you to the career that you want. But in reality, it you're probably not going to use the majority of the stuff that you <laughs> study. Well, I know I don't with my engineering degree.
1: That, that's right. I think it's it's maybe a signaling mechanism more than anything, you know, especially when you're talking about a liberal arts education like that. I mean, I wasn't in some kind of hardcore engineering program or something like that. Um, But the CIA, you know, for good or for ill, does a lot of recruiting out of programs like that with, you know, relatively uh, smart young people who are really highly motivated and really excited about doing this kind of work and interested in the world. You know, it's a great, great sort of uh, um, feeding ground for the agency, for sure. Mm
0: -hmm. And when you were in the agency, you focused on Syria and also did a stint in counterterrorism, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, I uh, pretty much the whole time worked on Syria from different angles. And one of those, which you mentioned, was doing a rotation in what's called the CIS Counterterrorism Center, uh, focused on, on Syria and Iraq, which would have been, you know, uh, 2008, 2009, around that that time period, um, back when, you know, the Iraq war was very hot and and counterterrorism issues related to Iraq and the Middle East were, were you know, on everyone's radar.
0: And so what was that like? I mean, going from being a college student, you know, small town USA, essentially to now being part of the CIA and working with such big worldwide issues that are happening and having to debrief all of the different policymakers.
1: It was really fun. I mean, you know, I think I kind of had the attitude because I had joined relatively young and. Um, it was really again like my first real job. You know, I I think I sort of had this perspective of I'm just I'm kind of really happy to be here and really excited for this opportunity. But there were definitely times where I thought it seems insane that, you know, I mean, when I I think when I got to Langley for the first time, I was 20 and I you know, I had the full security clearance and I'd gone through the volley and the medical and the cycle and all that kind of stuff. So I was fully cleared, but there were definitely periods of time especially early on where i kind of thought it seems a little crazy that someone this young is like in you know and and working on things that much older analysts are working on and of course i was under you know adult supervision the whole time but um i think as a young person you kind of and i think i think that's probably true in other uh, occupations as well you just kind of have this maybe sometimes this feeling of like i i I'm, I'm sort of been tossed in and I can't believe that the grown-ups are letting me play in the game, you know? Um, so that definitely was a feeling that I felt a lot in those early years. But I was mostly just really happy to be there and really excited for the opportunity. and felt like it was one of those really cool things where I hadn't really tried to get it. You know, I hadn't been scheming or gaming for this for a long time. It kind of just happened organically. And um it's been a, just a tremendous blessing to me to have had that opportunity you know so early in my life
0: what was the biggest surprise for you because i think everyone's going into this with different levels of assumptions when you say i'm going to be working for the cia yeah not exactly james bond all the time
1: no actually not all the time i would say i i uh, would sadly report that none of my days resembled jack ryan's or james bond's days uh But Chad Ryan
0: was an analyst. I mean, come
1: on. Oh, I know. I know. He must have been in a different part of the CIA because (laughs) that didn't, that did did not, I did not experience that so much. You know, I, I do, I do think, you know, maybe it's sort of, I should have anticipated this, but I do think that kind of humdrum bureaucratic aspect of it, which now I find to be quite humorous and try to incorporate when I can into the novels because there are pieces of it that are just so weird and uh quirky that they're entertaining to me at least. I you know, I think seeing that it's just like a really big normal organization was kind of profoundly surprising to me to start cuz you know, at that age, I mean, I wasn't naive, but also my entire life up until the point I walked in, my 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 mental model of the CIA was out of Hollywood, you know, out of spy fiction. And so to just see that it's actually a really big place that functions in many respects, like a dysfunctional Fortune 500 company with all the bizarre quirky stuff that goes along with that, you know, was pretty surprising to me. And I think continues to be, if not surprising, then just kind of very humorous. So that's, that was probably the biggest aha for me that occurred over the first you know few months I was there.
0: Mm-hmm and you pulled in like you said so many of those details into the stories like the clocks never quite matching and showing the accurate time and again this big bureaucracy and yet there's still the little things that they just can't get right
1: yeah that's that's right you know I, I I mean I remember being inside and kind of wondering like why are the clocks always a little bit screwed up and uh you know there were I mean there's just sort of countless stories there were there was a Functional kind of trailer that got set up on on site when we were staffing up the Iraq teams during kind of the, the height of the insurgency and the surge, you know, in 2006 2007 and there was a rat infestation in that trailer so you'd be in really important meetings about serious topics, and then you'd hear something running through the walls or underneath the floor or the ceiling. Um, you know, one one sort of fan favorite that I always enjoy talking about because it's so bizarre is, that, you know, there's like a hot dog machine at Langley uh, that I incorporated into Damascus Station. And I've never seen one anywhere else. But in the basement at Langley, there was this Hormel hot dog machine, um, you know, that the, people
0: would the... actually eat out of it.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I've consumed a highly classified number of hot dogs over the course of my life out of that machine because the the cafeteria at Langley closes typically at around like 2pm. And so if you have, if you have to stay late, and you didn't plan ahead, you, you know, which which happens with some frequency, you're kind of eating out of vending machines, or, you know, the hot dog machine, if you want to eat dinner. So, you know, I've been down there a number of of times, much to my shame and disgrace. And, you know, it's just, it's it's stuff like that, that like, there's a there's a thicket of agency regulations that Sort of govern life at you know on campus and at cia and i've kind of worked you know fictional versions of that into the novel so that piece of it i don't know i find maybe it's just me the analyst in me but i always just i find that stuff to be so humorous and so absent from most spy fiction that i have tried to incorporate it into my stories
0: okay now one of the questions and and i maybe be bordering on political so i'll apologize a little bit for that um but you always hear that in these elements, that the rank and file are in the day to day, it's very apolitical.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: when you were in the cia because you left under Brennan, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He was the director when I left.
0: So you had Brennan, you had Petraeus, Panetta. I mean, yeah. you had others. Did you notice a shift when the heads would change with the different political heads?
1: No, I, I didn't. And I mean, look, I think I'll say a couple things on this. One is, the, the CIA, there's only two positions at the CIA that are political appointees, the director and the deputy director. So, you know, in, in comparison to a lot of other executive branch agencies, the CIA is much more of a sort of professional bureaucratic organization that is more consistent than not between uh, presidential administrations or parties. So, and and also, you know, it's a big place. So even toward the tail end of my time there with Brennan, you know, I probably wouldn't have been in a position, uh, a managerial position high enough or anything like that to really see if there were substantial changes between, you know, uh, him and uh, him and Petraeus or, or Panetta or, you know, Hayden or anybody else. I, You know, so, so that just, that'd be one, one point I would make. I mean, I do think that one thing I always try to, communicate whenever I talk about the CIA is that you know really in contrast to a lot of the a lot of the political narratives you'll hear today, I mean, the CIA is really truly, you know, everyone has their own opinion there, obviously about politics. but it really is it a political organization that for the most part is just really trying to get the best information possible to the president. And of course, there's warts and mistakes and all that kind of stuff. but I always found, the place to be refreshingly, the political conversation was refreshingly absent at all levels of the organization that I worked at because everyone understood that it didn't really matter who the president was, which party was in power. We were doing the same job. So I don't know. That was my experience with it. You know, others who have served in different places and times and roles might have a different perspective, but that was always, that was always what I saw.
0: Mm-hmm. So even in gathering the information for the different areas, so like when you were focused on Syria, the changing political landscape, not only with the U.S. not being as much of a factor, but more so what was really happening on the ground there, because again, this was around the beginnings of the Arab Spring, right?
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. You know, and, and that was, I mean, that was a really challenging I mean a really stimulating period of time in some respects, but also a really tragic one uh, in others. To to kind of watch the the downward trajectory of that country kind of go from a you know relatively I mean still flawed but you know it's a, this authoritarian state that was relatively stable um, you know into one that was decidedly not, and the immense immense amount of human suffering that's sort of been unleashed as a result of that. Uh, but you know I I, I had the, the I, I was there, kind of, you know, I lived in Damascus in 2010, 2011, and uh, I really ended up having kind of a front row seat for a lot of it, for good or for ill. Uh, and I and I think that each administration, kind of more to the point of your question, each administration does bring a different or, you know, slightly different political agenda to some of these problems, but the CIA is sort of, it, you know, this is another important point about the National Security System is the CIA is not making foreign policy, deciding what we should be doing, uh, you know, in Syria or in Iraq or in Russia or with Iran or China. You know, the CIA is really providing intelligence to the President on what's going on, why it matters, or what's going on, why it's happening and and why it matters for the United States, really not recommending that we do this or that. So a president could come in and and have a totally different perspective on a topic like Syria and we're still obliged to you know answer questions provide that objective analysis and and I'll tell you in you know both the bush and obama administrations uh, they got angry at cia for you know at different times for providing that analysis in an objective way because it sort of contrasts or or makes the policy more difficult you know uh, so we're sort of an equal opportunity offender i think uh, no matter no matter what whether it's a Democrat or Republican in office.
0: Now, when you left the CIA, you went into consulting, Mm -hmm. but, and so you obviously had a break there before you started writing these novels, but what was that transition like from when you were an analyst in the CIA, where I'm assuming most of what you were writing were a lot of concise briefs and usually trying to boil down subjects, very complex subjects into basically a page and a half, right? to convince and provide all the material for the decision makers to determine what course of action they need to take. So very crisp, clean, concise, um, page and a half might even be too long to yes, now yeah, writing yeah. extensively long novels where we're scrolling through for every little detail. Um, that's Those are two very different styles of writing.
1: Very different, yeah. I. Um... And like you said, you know, I had spent really all of my time. Uh, you could probably argue that writing, you know, academic stuff as an undergrad or in grad school also is it's it's highly analytic. It's it's fairly edidine. Uh, You know, when you're talking about the CIA, writing, you know, there's a sort of bureaucratic process to it. There's a very specific structure. You know, you write about a page and a half. is probably too long for a lot of memos for the president's daily brief. It's more like a page or three quarters of a page. Um, and it's kind of the same with the consulting firm. You know, I was at McKinsey and Company. has a lot of PowerPoint slides. The, the room on those is fairly, uh, you know, it, it, you don't have a ton of space to work with. So you've got to be pretty crisp and to the point with, with your language. And there are some lessons here, I think that I've taken into my fiction writing. You know, one of them would be precision of language. You know, I think is still important in fiction. Uh, there's a way to do that without it being, mechanical or uh, devoid of voice, but being precise with your words is something that I think is really important. And then also being economical, you know, how can I, how can I communicate this piece of dialogue in the character's voice, but also using the the fewest words possible, you know, so there are some things that carry over, but you're right that, you know, the writing for the agency in particular, uh, there's no voice to it. You know, it's, it's a CIA product. Your name's not on it. Um, and you're trying to really take out the individuality, any kind of sense of, uh, perspective or voice from that, that type of writing. So I really found writing fiction to be a freeing exercise from those constraints. You know, uh, I started writing, the book that became Damascus Station in the summer after I left the CIA. And it was really a process, I think, of uh, discovering or really trying to to deal with the emotions that I felt after having worked on that topic and having lived there and watching the place devolve into civil war. And, you know, this is a country that is just totally ripped to pieces and shattered, you know. Um, And so writing helped me to kind of work through what i felt about how i felt about that and and i think to to recover some sense of the humanity and the inhumanity in a conflict like that that i couldn't really you know because you're not writing from the standpoint of really individuals or at the individual human level when you're writing stuff for cia you know it's it's at this kind of strategic upper level so so writing novel or starting to write creatively really helped me, I think, to try to put humans and and individual people back kind of front and center, uh, you know, in the story of Syria. So I just, you know, I found that I could sit down and write for six, seven, eight hours and time would fly by. And, you know, it it was, um, it was more at time, you know, at times when I'm writing, it it feels sort of frightening because you're encountering the blank page and you could do, write, say anything, and I've generally found that to be more freeing than terrifying, and so I think it sort of helped me to break out of some of that, um, those constraints that I had been writing under for most of my life, uh, and and write in a new way.
0: So, if you started the book in 2011 when you first left the CIA, well, it was published several years after that. <laughs> So, were you continuing to write on it during that time did you put it aside and if you did put it aside what brought you back to it
1: yeah i, I put it aside so i wrote i left the cia in 2014 i wrote uh about hundred thousand words or so in between maybe may of 2014 and september of 2014 and it was not a novel i think you know it was ter- it was from a the standpoint of a story plot or even character it was awful uh it was more of a journal uh, some frankenstein of kind of journal entries and musings and random character sketches and plot notes but you know i had found kind of that magic of i love doing this and uh, you know i had an opportunity to i I took the consulting job you fast forward five years you know I'm, i'm working 70, 80 hours a week and traveling all the time and not sleeping much. So the side hustle of trying to write or even carving out, you know, 30 minutes a day to do it was pretty much impossible. So it literally just sat. And then I, uh, I took a leave of absence from the consulting job, uh, was just kind of burned out and needed a break. And I pulled that manuscript out and also, you know, sort of promptly realized it was awful, but, Understood that, you know i I wanted to try to see if I could write something that I would want on my nightstand and that someone else might want to read. And so that leave of absence, which stretched about seven months was was really when damascus station was was written. And the book came out of that. It was sort of, you know, I had enough space and time away from CIA in Syria, I think, to maybe be more objective about it uh, and more maybe professional as a writer about it. um. And it just took off from there. I wrote the book and uh, haven't looked back.
0: I remember you mentioning at dinner that they had, that you had to send it to the CIA for them to review it um, before final publishing. With that in mind, for that book, and then also for Moscow X, did you find yourself doing your own self-censoring as you were writing? Or did you just initially put it all out on the page?
1: I think when I start to draft, I put it all out on the page and I don't worry about that. You know i um i i don't I don't really edit for the first couple drafts of of the book. You know, I just kind of try to at least for the first draft. I just try to get it all down on paper, and I kind of don't care um about i mean even I just don't I don't care about basic writing mistakes really i don't I don't care about revealing too much. I just put it all down on paper. and as the edit editorial process sort of goes from there. I do take a look at things pretty seriously and say, "Is this on the line? Over the line? Should I or shouldn't I?" And you know, I do self-edit. Um, but that that publication review process, yeah, is, is something I'll face for the rest of my life. I always send my books into the CIA to have them look at them, look them over. And I think, honestly, uh, I source them you know, a couple hundred sources each to kind of point out where I got things in the open source world. So I haven't had too many problems. Um, I've also, I, I know that the Publication Review Board applies a different standard to fiction and nonfiction. So, you know, if I had tried to write a memoir about my time working on Syria, that would have been really challenging. But writing Damascus Station, as sort of weird as that is, writing Damascus Station, even putting a lot of real stuff in there, they didn't take it out. So, you know, it's it's a bit of an arbitrary process, but I've mostly figured out how to manage it. And the publication review board is pretty effective and professional about it. So that's that's been a positive too.
0: How about when you have real world scenarios that are now entering into your writing? Um, I mean, I know when I was reading Damascus Station, everything that was going on in the Middle East, it's like, okay, it was hitting differently than it might have at a, another mm-hmm. time. And of course now with Moscow X, just the timing of it, I have to imagine that the the war with Ukraine had to have played a factor in this.
1: Yeah, yeah, that uh, it was. Un- in some respects, the timing was was very unfortunate because I literally finished the first draft of Moscow X in in early February of twenty twenty two, so just weeks before Putin actually invaded. And, you know, I I realized, and I kind of knew then, because I think it was starting to become clear, even in like December and early January, that the Russians were going to invade. I I sort of knew that I was going to have to rework the novel to incorporate that, Um, which was not fun. You know, I was kind of ready to just move forward without it. And I had some plot things in there that no, no longer, right, that no longer made any sense. And it just, there it, There was no other way around it. You know, I had to rework scenes in Moscow and St. Petersburg to reflect the fact that the invasion happened. I had to kind of think about every chapter or scene in which I was in the head of one of the Russian characters. You know, does the war, does the changing reality inside the country, um, is that going to affect the way they're thinking about this scene? You know, so so it was a lot of work, even though the book's not about the war in Ukraine at all it just sort of is out there hanging over the narrative or around the narrative. So that definitely, you know, was a factor. And then, you know, in, in this past summer in June, when mm-hmm. Yevgeny Pogosian launched his sort of abortive mutiny or, you know, attempted coup, whatever you want to call it, I sort of found myself in a strange position of like, I, you know, I saw the news. I was like, Oh, you know, I'm kind of, my knee jerk reaction was like so root for Putin so that I wouldn't have to change the book again. And, you know, if he got to post uh, uh you know that quickly went away um so it was just it was it was a different you know Damascus station the Syrian civil war still going on but the events of that novel are taking place in the early years of it so I never had to really worry about what was happening in Syria and I was really watching a lot of the news on Russia and Ukraine pretty consistently while writing this book to make sure that you know I I was at least doing you know, the, the the doing it justice, right, in in my novel.
0: Are you finding that a lot of readers are coming into Moscow X with different assumptions because we've historically had so many spy novels where Moscow has been kind of the the opposing factor? And I'm saying that in comparison to the Damascus Station, where perhaps not as many people are familiar with the Arab world and the goings on there.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think that's true. You know, there's a long, rich history of, you know, sort of either, you know, the Brits or us versus the Russian spy novels, you know, that was almost every spy novel with very few exceptions for a lot of the Cold War, and it continues to be the case today. Um, and, you know, I I, I think that there's probably just more familiarity as American readers in general with Russia and with the idea of Russia being, you know, the sort of antagonist or opposing force in a spy novel. I think, you know, in Syria, the dynamic was different and not only it was this, this relatively, you know, sort of unexplored conflict from the standpoint of spy fiction, uh, but it was also in a civil war where, you know, I'd probably argue that in Damascus Station, um, you know, it's, it's not really the CIA versus the Syrians. It's kind of everyone against themselves or each other, you know, so it's a bit more of that civil war dynamic. So it's a little bit different on both fronts.
0: And the other thing in both novels that got me, especially when you were mentioning Putin in each one, I'm like, okay, Putin, we're, we're dealing with the real life people on all of these things, right? As opposed to other novelists sometimes, like like Silva, where usually they're writing in such big characterizations. So people obviously know who the author means, but they're never outright named. So is that something that you were trying to take into account with your novels? And are there other characters that you're like, oh, I don't want to bring them in, but it's okay to mention Putin because of who he is and, and just... The the nature of things
1: yeah so I'll be honest I've never understood why authors so clearly indicate who the character is and then don't just go and make them the character uh I don't know I, I I kind of I kind of don't I don't get that especially when we're talking about heads of state that are immediately apparent you know um we know almost nobody would know who the director of the russian fsb is but everybody knows who vladimir putin is and so if i call him you know vladimir vladimirovich like everyone knows you know we all we all know so why don't i just include my, my thought process is kind of just let's just include these guys both assad and putin as characters and also you know uh, I had a bit of a, especially with Assad, a bit of a selfish desire because in Damascus Station, uh, he's almost, uh, blown up and, you know, I don't really like Bashar al-Assad all that much because he's terrible. And so I was excited to give the fictional version of him, you know, a real, a real scare. So I had some, some selfish desires at play there.
0: Well, I also want to bring up the women in your novels because they're all very strong characters, um, Fully realized in, and they're not just the damsels in distress like you sometimes see in certain novels. So from Damascus Station, Miriam, but now also with Moscow X, with Sia and Anna, where they're going back and forth, and kind of in this uh, cat and mouse game of trying to recruit each other on things. But I've got to mention my favorite, Artemis Proctor. I mean, <laughs>
1: my God! I was Artem- hoping I was hoping you would say that. She's my favorite too.
0: I mean, the first couple pages in Moscow X, I mean, she has knocked out the Russian agent, uh, stabbed him with a a vodka bottle, knocked him out with a (laughs) bottle of horse's milk, which apparently she would normally drink under normal, under more celebratory uh, experiences, stolen his pants, gotten her compromising photos, which she kind of is like rather blasé about, and stole his pants and... You know, now in Moscow, she has a baseball bat because people were complaining about the gun that she used to keep in Syria. I mean, and this is like the first few pages.
1: Yeah, yeah, it kind of it kind of gets out of the gate with a little bit of a bang,
0: just yeah. a bit. <laughs> Inspiration.
1: I, I love her character. She is uh, she is one of those characters that just kind of immediately. I don't know how she came about in part because she just sort of walked into a scene one day in Damascus station and kind of stole the show. And as a writer, you're always looking for that character. You know, you're hoping you find that character because not only is she extremely colorful and very deranged, obviously, but she has so much energy to her that, you know, she just makes things happen. Um, And the book, I actually never had her had intended to put her in this book. And there was a period in the writing process where I felt like I needed to inject some energy and life into it. And so I just sort of brought, you know, she was my favorite character in Damascus Station. and uh, I just brought her into the narrative. And before you know it, she's, you know, stabbing people with vodka bottles and smashing bottles of horse milk over their heads and we're off to the races so you know she's she's a great character i really love her and she's also the star of the show in the third book which will be out next fall
0: oh fantastic i i'm so happy to hear that because she she is she is something else let me tell you
1: she is (laughs) (laughs) but
0: with all of that i mean what is it that first inspires you is it the characters is it the storyline the plot and and are you seeing that as a movie in your head or what is that overall writing process?
1: Yeah. So my, my process is pretty inefficient. I don't, (laughs) I don't have a better idea at this point. I just have, am doing the thing that seems to get books out, you know, every year or two. I, uh, I don't outline, I don't really have any idea what the plot will be when I start. I, if I can, I like to start with a pretty resonant image in my head. So with, uh, Damascus station, it was a couple people in an interrogation room facing each other. Um, you know, in Moscow X, it was a woman riding on horseback away from a home that's on fire. And in both of those cases, I didn't have any idea who the people were or why they were in those situations, but I felt like, uh, I was seeing, the emotional climax of the story or like I, I had unearthed the part of the story that had a tremendous amount of energy and so the writing process for me has been how do i get to find how do i how do i write to find that scene to find that piece of the story um and typically i write you know the, the books are somewhere between 100 and you know let's call it 120 130,000 words And uh, I typically write somewhere between four and 500,000 words to find the book. Um, I I don't know a better way to do it. I kind of equate it to like, if you're putting together an an album, you know, a a music album, got maybe 12, 14 songs on there. You probably wrote 30, you know, to figure out what were going to be the top 12. And then those 12 were edited incessantly to make them as you know, pop as much as they can. And, you know, I think my my writing process is kind of similar where I'll just sit down and, and, you know, the third book, like I just kind of sat down and I had no sense of the, of the chronology or the plot, even I just wrote scenes that I felt like had energy. And then I went back and started to put them together into the story. Um, and I, I don't know a better way to do it. it's it's if anyone here knows one, I'd definitely love to hear it because i uh, you know, writing four hundred thousand words and and throwing away nearly three hundred thousand of them is not not an ideal process, but it's the one i've it's the one I've found so far.
0: Can you give us any hints as to the basis for the third book?
1: yeah. so the the third book is uh, it's kind of a modern homage to Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, the great. John Le Carre novel, which I think is probably one of, if not the best spy novel ever written, and it's it's a mole hunt. It's a modern mole hunt uh, with a you know a, a Russian asset who is working inside Langley, and Artemis Proctor is brought back from her sort of debauched retirement to solve this mystery. Uh, and it'll be I think we don't have a specific date yet, but it'll be out sometime. Uh, next fall, probably September, October, November, something
0: like that. Fantastic. Well, I will get in trouble with our readers if I don't throw (laughs) some of our fresh fiction facts at you. So I know we're a little bit over, but these are meant to be some quick, off the top of your head type answers. Nothing to send you. Um, And and I promise nothing too political in in nature or or delving into the history with CIA. Okay.
1: (laughs) I can take it. All right, hit me.
0: <laughs> Who would you most want to be stuck in an elevator with?
1: An elevator technician. An elevator technician.
0: That's a good one. Okay. <laughs> what is something that you own a ridiculous amount of? Books. What is something other than books that you own a ridiculous amount of? You, Everyone answers books.
1: <laughs> I know it is. It's, it's my, one of my primary advices. Um, I own a ton of, I'm a huge baseball fan. So I own a ton of, um, like small baseball, collectible baseball helmets.
0: About those Rangers, huh?
1: Yeah, I know. It was right? a hell of a year.
0: <laughs> what legitimately bad movie do you regularly enjoy watching?
1: Step Brothers. Oh
0: my gosh, that is a bad one. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I
1: watch it. I watch it every year. I, I without fail.
0: What is your most dog-eared or reread book?
1: It's it's Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, easily.
0: Read it once a year, or j- and do you? Yeah. Read the entire I, I, thing, or do you just pick it up at certain sections?
1: No, i I would say. I probably reread it once every one to two years but this past year because I was sort of basing the new book or try, trying to sort of, um, you know, redo the mole hunt but give some, you know, tip of the hat to hurry. I think I reread it three times this year so but I have probably read it, you know, I don't know 20 times something like that 15 to 20 times. It's fantastic.
0: Okay, you've been kidnapped. But they return you after three hours because you will not stop talking about what?
1: Well, it's probably Cleveland baseball. Uh I like I so I rooted for the Rangers in the in the playoffs, but my my dad grew up outside of Cleveland and raised me on Cleveland sports. And so we are big, uh I guess they're now called the Guardians, but I still can't really accept that. Cleveland Baseball Club. We're big Cleveland Baseball Club fans. So that would be the They'd probably shoot me. They might not return me. It'd be too much talk about Cleveland baseball.
0: <laughs> so that's the team of your heart, even though you're in Dallas.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's right.
0: Okay. We can go with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your favorite road trip snack that you grab from the gas station? Beef jerky. What talent do you wish that you were born with?
1: uh a sense of uh tone when i sing
0: (laughs) so with that do you listen to a playlist when you write
1: i listen to i typically will listen to this either the same song on repeat so it becomes white noise and that can vary a lot over the course of the writing process or Something that I've consistently kind of incorporated into my writing has been, uh, there's a pianist named Ludovico Einaudi who gave a concert at, I think at the Royal Albert Concert Hall in London. And that, I'll listen to that kind of on repeat for extended periods of writing. Mm
0: -hmm. What is your favorite writing fuel?
1: Coffee, coffee, lots of it like ungodly amounts of it when I'm really working on a book yeah like six or seven cups a day
0: what is your favorite genre to read
1: I mean it's by it's spy fiction yeah I mean it's I you know I, I I in part I mean I was at the CIA but in part I write it because it's just that's what I grew up on and that's what I love so that's that's where I will always you know I, I make an intentional choice to read outside of the genre and really do enjoy reading outside of it but I will gravitate toward spy fiction, uh, if given the chance.
0: Do you find, okay, I'm kind of getting off this fresh fiction facts, but do you find that ever, uh, I don't know if it's confusing or that things start to overlap because you're reading so much spy fiction and also I've seen some of your other interviews and you're going on with other authors who are in the spy realm also. Like I I saw your interview with, uh, John Carr, I think it was, um, yeah. How does all of that kind of intermix sometimes as you're writing your own novels?
1: Well, I, you know, I I don't find it to be confusing. I find it to be helpful. And I think in large part because I see, um, I kind of think of the genre as like a long, ongoing conversation between a lot of different writers and readers over time. And so I think that to it's just kind of like we're talking to each other. And so I I think for me, it's helpful to really know what other people are talking about and writing about to help me understand even better what I wanna do, you know? Um, And I think, you know, there's really, it's probably true that there's really nothing new under the sun. And so sometimes just reading in the genre, reading in the genre extensively gives me a ton of inspiration and ideas for my own work. So I, I find it to be really a source of inspiration more than more than anything you know i think that the downside of it is you're always analyzing things now to figure out how did someone do this if i like this why do i like this if i don't like this why is that so you know i will say that kind of practicing the craft has probably in some not all the time but in you know in sort of aggregate uh, probably reduced my enjoyment of of reading because i'm constantly thinking about about the the craft
0: mm-hmm with that what is something that can immediately take you out of a story, be it either a book or a movie?
1: I think uh, I think the there and I think an excessive focus on um, like proper names or brands will will do that uh because I think it. I think it makes me feel, and, and it can be done well, but it makes me feel that kind of authorial intrusion at a point in the story where I shouldn't. And it makes me feel like it's not the character saying that, it's it's the author. So that'll, that'll do it for me.
0: What is the best book that you've read recently? And you can't say Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy.
1: I was, I was, I won't say that. I was a, I'm a relatively late comer to this, but there's a book called Five Decembers by James Kestrel, which I think won the Edgar for Best Novel last year, if I'm not mistaken. And it's this really beautiful story about uh, sort of a, a murder mystery that moves between, I mean, the murder mystery is kind of the spine, but it's a, it's also a love story, and it moves, it takes place during World War II, and it moves between Oahu to Hong Kong to Tokyo, um, and I really found it to be, it's ex- extremely well-written, extremely evocative of those places, and really heartfelt. Like, it's a very moving story. That was probably the best novel I've read recently.
0: You're putting together the Mount Rushmore of authors. Who needs to go up on there? Either your favorites or the most deserving or influential.
1: Do I have to list out the names?
0: Yeah, well, the names or the books. I'll I'll let you do either one.
1: Oh man. How many heads are on Mount Rushmore? Are there four? four. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh um (laughs) that's like i mean this is almost an impossible question i mean that's uh that's crazy uh let's see
0: is this the stumper
1: i mean this is like this is this is like an almost impossible question um (laughs) let's see uh i mean you have to i feel like you have to put shakespeare up there um I feel like uh, you need to put...
0: I mean, these could be the ones most influential for you.
1: Okay. All right. That's easier. I, I, okay. 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 Uh, most influ- influential for me. Um, let's see. Well, so it would be... I mean, it's going to be kind of a weird list. John LeCarré, Jason Matthews, who wrote... Red Sparrow. I think those books really kind of. Should, that he he and I are sort of. I do We we we're very simpatico. I think in what we're trying to do. Um, I would say Charles McCarry, uh, who was former C. A. He writes pineapples, but he also just um, writes wonderful love stories and cares deeply at a human level for his characters and. Again, it's going to be kind of a random one. But the only time I've cried during a while well, i've been reading a book is I read a book called Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. And I would put him up there just because it's very hard to make me cry. And that's the only time I've cried while I've been reading a book. So I'll put him up there because that's that's an impressive feat,
0: okay. All right. here's a this one's going to be a fairly easy one, maybe, but probably not one you typically get if you could see one and know that it's real, would you rather see a ghost or an alien?
1: Oh, <laughs> definitely an alien, definitely an alien. I think the ghost, seeing a ghost would raise much more uncomfortable questions even than seeing an alien to me. If I, if I knew it was real, so I'd rather see the alien. Because I could, I could already kind of believe that aliens are there, but then it, to I see it go. I going ghost... to say,
0: being former CIA, I mean, come on.
1: And I've already and I've already seen one too, you know. <laughs> so there's that. It has that advantage.
0: If you came with the warning label, what would it say?
1: Uh, doesn't care about your feelings.
0: Oh, harsh!
1: I know. Terrible! I know.
0: Golly, well, with that's that- that's
1: why you put the that's why you put the label on. You know?
0: Very true. That's why I asked. Yes, yes. <laughs> but with that, our final and most important question is what is the best way for our readers to keep up with you and find out what's coming next?
1: Let's see. You can uh go to my website, david Um, but I would say the best thing is actually probably to follow me on social media. Uh I'm the handle is at McCloskey Books, and you can find me on Uh, Instagram, TikTok, uh, and Twitter. And I usually keep those pretty up to date. I've been doing more videos recently across Instagram and TikTok too, about writing, about the CI, all that kind of stuff. So that's probably the most like up-to-date place to to follow me if you want to know what's going on with writing and the books and everything else.
0: Well, David, thanks so much for sticking around and uh, answering all of my questions on the CIA and your writing process and having our readers find out a little bit more about Moscow X.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a ton of fun. I really appreciate it.